welcome back to My Little Tonys. Hello, coming to you live from quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> live and delayed. Yeah, I feel like not much has changed with our setup, even during these trying times. I know, and I moved into a new house between last time and this time, and it's like, who would ever know? Well, yeah, let us know in the comments if the acoustics of Anna's new house are better or worse than the ones of her last. I was actually a little worried about that because this room is much bigger, so I'm hoping it's not too echoey, but I don't think it is. Okay, so we are going to talk about... Are you jeweling? No. (laughs) No, I ate a piece of salt that was on the table. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So we're, we're... Back in the 1950s, this is our first 50s that we've done that isn't like a big deal, I think. This is sort of a minor one. So this was the 8th Tony Awards, and it took place at the Plaza Hotel Grand Ballroom on March 28th, 1954. It was broadcast on the radio by NBC. The MC was James Souter, and the presenter was Helen Hayes. And there were performances by Francis Greer, Lucy Monroe, Russell Knipe, Joseph Skander, and Gene Swetland. So James Souter was the kind of the OG Tony's presenter. I think that he was the chairman of the American Theater Wing Entertainment Committee. Mm-hmm. And I think Helen Hayes at that point, she had the nickname the First Lady of the American Theater Wing. Helen Hayes was a bad bitch, we all know. Yeah. She did not EGOT until uh, 1977. Okay. Um, for her Grammy-winning performance on the Great American Documents record. Uh, a classic that we all love. <laughs> um, it feels like it's been a long time since we recorded. It's been oddly hard to concentrate. And I know. Get, I think that going into quarantine, I thought that I would have all the time in the world, but just focusing on stuff seems so impossible. I know. I feel busier than ever and like way more stressed. We both still enjoy doing this podcast. It just is, uh, you know, I thought I was just going to be able to podcast podcast all the live long day, and that's just not the way it is. <laughs> so I don't know if there's a ton to say about the season overall. This is one of those seasons where you don't, they did not announce the nominees. They kept that a secret. So they just, we just have the winners. The four big shows this year that had multiple wins were actually the play on Dean was the biggest winner of the night that had four wins. Kismet had three wins. The Tea House of the August Moon, which was also a play, had three wins and Can Can had two wins. So I guess we'll start with Kismet because that one, um, outstanding musical, not best musical. (laughs) I kind of wish they would still call it like distinguished dramatic actor or distinguished I know, it sounds... So, um, so it sounds so distinguished. It does sound very <laughs> distinguished. And it, it, you know, it, it gets rid of the problem where everyone's like, why are we comparing everyone to each other? Why are we saying this person's the best and this isn't? It's like, no, they're just distinguished. But it is interesting in this season, even just like kind of reading the breakdown of the season, it seemed like within the plays, there was a um, showdown between like comedies and dramas. And, you know, I think that kind of this like age old thing of like, oh, could a co- could a comedy actually win best play was at play um, in this mm-hmm. season. So it actually like looking at the numbers this season, I think that there were seven new musicals. Meanwhile, there were, I think, 40 new plays. Jeez. 
which is really crazy. So I've read varying accounts. Some people say that there were eight new musicals this season. This season in retrospect in the New York Times says that there were six. So who knows? But I think that like what is interesting about this is seasons are being said to kind of like you know, by the end of May, like the season's over. And, you know, they talk about how like during the summer, nothing opens because no one wants to see a play when it's hot out. (laughs) So I I saw that same. I think this is the same article that you're talking about where it's like, because we, this sort of a question we've had the whole time, which is like, why is the season defined the way it is? Like, how do they pick when they do the Tonys, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so this article was like, the season ends on May 30th because that's when equity contracts expire. But that didn't really make any sense to me because it's like, wouldn't the contracts have to do with like when the shows open? Like, wouldn't they be, you know, a year from whatever? I don't know. It seemed weird to, I I mean, I'm not a member of equity, obviously. I don't really understand the finer details of the contracts, but that was sort of another clue that I was kind of like, well, that doesn't really explain anything at all, I think. Yeah, no, it doesn't. I mean, I think that like what makes the most, well, I mean, I think now with the advent of air conditioning and, (laughs) you know, Broadway becoming such a tourist attraction rather than catering to locals, you know, the summer does seem like the likely time that like a season would, what like it, you know, makes the most sense that that's when the former season would end and the new season would begin since it kind of feels like a gray area. Yeah, and I guess it makes sense that that's why like, the seasons ended because this Tony's was on March 28th. So it's yeah. like, what, what is going on here? Like that's, you know, I guess we'll never know if you're coming to this podcast, looking for those answers, we don't have them. <laughs> and kind of like the quarantine, I feel like trying to like wrap your head around this season is if the two kind of feel similar in the way that I feel like it's like, oh, well, I have unlimited amount of time. Like, of course, I'll be able to, like, do this really simple task. And, like, in the case of this uh, Tony's year, like, it's like, oh, there are only, like, four shows. <laughs> like, why wouldn't it be hard? But it's like, I still feel like I have questions. And, like, maybe I'm overthinking it. But I feel like this season, it may be, like, the answer to the riddle is simpler than I actually think. Yeah, and I think it's also because, like, none of the shows this season are like any of our favorites. And I think we sort of struggle with those years because there's not really something to grip onto. There wasn't really, well, there's some backstage drama, but I think this is kind of, it is what it is. I don't know if there, I think, you know, we both had a hard time finding an angle. One interesting thing um, that is kind of just a side note. So Audrey Hepburn won best distinguished or most distinguished actress in a play, but in kind of like the site in the kind of next day reporting on it, they refer to her Tony as a Perry prize, Whoa. which I think is kind of interesting, right? The Perry's. Yeah. Also in that piece, um, they said that if you won, like the playwright would win like the actual Tony award or like the creative team would win like the actual award, but then the producers won scrolls, um, which I think is interesting. And like, I feel like I've seen these like Tony scrolls before in, you know, pictures and stuff. So yeah, that is interesting. And she also had won an Oscar. I'm trying to find the dates. It says she won her Oscar for Roman holiday, like the week before I'm trying to find the date of that oscars to verify but um that's the case she was having a very good week yeah she's on fire yeah okay so let's get into kismet so kismet opened 
December 3rd, 1953, closed April 23rd, 1955, after 583 performances, with music from Alexander Borodin, musical adaptation by Robert Wright and George Forrest, um, and they also wrote the lyrics, book by Charles Lederer and Luther Davis, directed by Albert Marr, choreographed by Jack Cole, and was based on the 1911 play by Edward Knobloch. And the synopsis is... Hodge the beggar escapes the clutches of a vengeful bandit, drowns the evil wazir of police, catches the eye of the wazir's voluptuous wife, serves as emir of Baghdad, and sees his daughter wed to the handsome caliph. And it won Best Musical, Best Actor for Alfred Drake, and Best Conductor. So the team of Robert Wright and George Forrest had sort of gotten into this groove where they took classical composers and kind of reappropriated their music. They sort of reshaped it into operetta scores, and they had done it in the 40s for Edvard Grieg um, for a show called Song of Norway, and that was sort of like a biographical story of, of Grieg's life, and that was fairly successful. So with this, they took this... 1911 play that I guess is like a I don't know would you call it a melodrama no it's I guess it's a comedy yeah it's like somewhere in between it's kind of like a weird period fairy tale the story itself like thinking of it not being a musical it is sort of like has these like opera subtones to them but you know the book is like very jokey that was written for this so kind of hard to place <laughs> yeah well i found i think this is from the um review of the encores production and it says this arabian night style tale talked like a musical comedy dressed like a sexy burlesque skit and sang like an old style operetta so i guess that's kind of uh and a weird little side note i was looking into uh alexander borodin's history and apparently he he was like trained as a doctor and chemist and he made huge contributions to early organic chemistry And during his lifetime, he was known as a doctor and chemist and like music was just like a hobby. That's sort of, that's insane. So his, (laughs) as a chemist, he is known best for his work concerning organic synthesis, including being among the first chemists to demonstrate nucleophilic substitution, as well as being the co-discoverer of the Aldol reaction, whatever that means. So, you know, get you a man who can do both. That, yeah, that's so crazy. And also, he obviously had been long dead at this point, but he also won a Tony Award. Yeah, putting him in the company of uh, T.S. Eliot for Cats. (laughs) You know, I found this little succinct quote about the uh, songwriting team. They wrote the lyrics to the music, adjusted music where necessary, assembled it into motifs, and even wrote their own melodies here and there. So, like, while Kismet was their most successful sort of... um, you know, doing of this. They also wrote their own complete scores. And I think after this, Keen starred Alfred Drake, um, mm-hmm. but it was a flop. And, you know, everything else besides At the Grand, which in its first iteration was a flop, but then came back with new songs by Maury Yeston and directed and choreographed by Tommy Toon as Grand Hotel, oh, which is yes. interesting. Yeah, because I was like, well, where do these guys ever come up again? But I was watching, I think, a, a you know, an early 90s, probably the 1990 Tonys, where it was the Grand Hotel year, and they were giving Alfred Drake, like, a special prize that year, and then they were, like, the two men who, like, made Alfred Drake's, like, gave him one of, like, the biggest achievements of his career are actually sitting right in the audience tonight. Yeah, so this was kind of like... So this was, you know, like an operetta throwback. Operetta was not a 
style of musical that was really popular anymore. And I think this is kind of the last the last gasp of operetta on Broadway, but um, was very successful. And part of it was that so the critics hated it and were very mean to it. But nobody it was too late because there was a newspaper strike when it opened. So it became a hit from two factors. One was that they rushed the album into the stores. They recorded it like three days after it opened. And so it got big play. Everybody loved the music. And it was also the first show to advertise on TV. Um, And it's sort of ambiguous how that happened. Like they didn't do a commercial or anything, but I think maybe they had people appear on the news talking about how good it was, but it was like planted by the show. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of interesting. Like, you know, we have been talking a lot about like which show was the first show to really utilize um, television advertising. And I think, you know, Pippin was really the first one to do it on that kind of scale. But it's, you know, it's kind of funny seeing like 20 years earlier seeing this, aside from things like, you know, appearing on Ed Sullivan or whatever. And it's also, I, I think that like, you know, seeing what else was on Broadway at the time, like comparing this to like a wonderful town you know i think at the time the king and i was also playing south pacific guys and dolls wish you were here and a revival of porgy and bess Mm -hmm. like it it's funny because like while it doesn't seem like any of them it kind of feels like it takes like a little mix of all of them and like throws it in a pot yeah you know i was sort of so i I watched the movie which is uh beautiful it's very colorful but i was kind of i was feeling a little lukewarm on it but um ethan morden in uh, his book about the 50s he makes a very impassioned case for it that that won me over he says that he saw it when he was a child and it made a huge impression on him so this is what he says about what made kismet unique all other operettas were generic Kismet was novel and better, wild, boiling with erotic heat in its very look. What other operetta had four bodybuilders in the cast, including the future king of Italian Hercules movies, Steve Reeves? Kismet was a musical feast, the only operetta of all time to throw off not hit tunes, but a hit score, eventually counting eight major recordings. And Kismet was weird and irreverent and sexy entertainment. That score really is a wonder in the way it has the variety of a musical comedy's tune stack, but the intensity of an old-time operetta. There's nothing stale here, nothing conventional. Yeah, so I think, you know, the biggest the biggest hit to come out of it is Stranger in Paradise, which was Tony Bennett's first hit, I believe. Take my hand, I'm a stranger in paradise, all lost in a wonderland. A stranger in paradise If I stand starry-eyed That's a danger in paradise For mortals who stand beside An angel like you It's like kind of amazing because like none of these songs ring out pop hit, but like they're definitely earworms. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of fun variety to the score that I appreciated that it, you know, it took me a couple of listens to get into it, but. Yeah, I feel like in our preparation of Timbuktu, I was trying to listen to it. And I think that it kind of made me think about when I had gotten into shows like Les Mis or Phantom, where it's like, did I like immediately like respond to this music or was it just repeat listens that made me learn to sort of love it and grow to like understand it? 
Because I think that like at kind of first listen, it feels a little hard to sort of enter. Yeah. And while Anna watched the movie version, I watched a um, television Armstrong TV theater version that was uh, made in the 60s that starred Barbara Eden of I Dream of Genie fame. And while the book had been significantly cut, like I think it still had like the same sort of energy of it. I think, you know, the common theme of every adaptation of this has been a lot of white people dressed in, you know, middle eastern clothing yeah well and that's the thing it's like i think that the actual fact that like this exists is like problematic and racist and orientalist (laughs) but like i also don't think that as i think that like you know the animated cartoon movie aladdin is like (laughs) has like more bad stuff in it than like this does like i think that one of the faults of it is that like it's very superficial but it's almost cartoony like it does i think that we had talked about this off the air but like imagining them like transporting it to africa to make timbuktu like there's nothing that like made me be like oh that could never happen like it's very easy like it's all very surface level like all of sort of the cultural Uh, elements of it yeah so the two leads were alfred drake and joan diener and something that they have in common is that they both originated multiple like iconic theater roles that they did not get to do on film like alfred drake was the original curly in oklahoma he did kismet and he also was the original fred and kiss me kate he didn't get to do any of those movies Um, And Joan Diener, besides this, she also was the original Eldonza in Man of La Mancha. You know, it's like for a long time, Alfred Drake was the highest paid leading man on Broadway, but it's sort of like, you know, it's like if you don't get canonized in the movie, it's like where where are you 50 years later or however many years it's been, 70 years. In my head, it's still the year 2000. I know. That's always what I use to like count back my numbers (laughs) on. No, but I totally agree. Like I feel like for years I had like seen his name, but like didn't understand who he was. And just hearing him sing, there's like a British television performance of him kind of singing, you know, hits from Kismet, Oklahoma and Kiss Me Kate. And he has such a beautiful voice. Behold your adorable face Just a song at the start But... Oh, good evening. Now let me see, where were we? Oh yes, we were in Oklahoma. Why do they think up stories that link my name with yours? Why do the neighbors gossip all day behind their doors? I think in like a way that Broadway's leading men don't have, you know, I think that obviously in this day and age, we all love Broadway's leading ladies, but you know, (laughs) he has something special. Yeah, he really set the mold for the leading man on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And also, Ethan Morden talks about how strange the leading man character is in Kismet, like how sort of what an unusual kind of combination of talents he needs. Kismet's protagonist is something the musical virtually never had before Showboat in 1927, a one-of-a-kind personality whose dialogue, music, and overall worldview is utterly unlike those of any other personality in any other musical. First of all, the poet is a comic. When was an operetto's hero a comedian? He's also a father, we know, and his relationship with Marcina is very touching, especially when he determines to murder the wazir in full view of the court because he put Marcina in harm's way. The poet thus calls for more of a singing actor than for a romantic hero. 
True, he has sort of a sort of love plot with Laloum, but this is clearly set out as an erotic and not rhapsodic duo. Then, too, the poet's musical program is rather various for an operetta. The poet's songs cover a great diversity of type. Uh, and then he gives all the different examples that we don't of the different songs that he has to sing. When you tell a story, amorous or gory, you can tell it best if you just tick you late. Suppose the mighty Sinbad meets a gin who's been bad. They will guess the rest if you just tick you late. A tongue is a tongue, and a lung is a lung, and a tail they can shout or sing without the gesture. Nothing. Should Scheherazade undulate her body, that can be expressed if you just can be assessed if you just she'll be undressed if you just stick. You'll eat. There's a deceptive amount of variety. It, you know, it's not just like a straightforward operetta tribute. Yeah, and I think that even plot-wise, while it's not as seemingly like well-crafted as like a Rodgers and Hammerstein book musical. I do think that I think that like there's just so much going on and like all of the characters relationships with each other are you know they all have sort of have these conflicts between each other that like just really keep it moving in a way that I kind of expected him to be like the center of it and have like one sort of narrative arc that we like tracked but like there's just so much going on. There's a lot going on. I was watching it while I was unpacking and I was kind of like, you know, I sort of had a hard time kind of keeping tabs on everything that was happening. But I was I was, you know, along for the ride. So they did they did it in encores in 2006, I believe. They reteamed the Kiss Me Kate team of Brian Stokes Mitchell and Marin Maisie, which is excellent casting. Mm-hmm. Ben Brilliant was basically like the show doesn't really work. Like it's too old fashioned. Like there's sort of this, you know, cultural insensitivity aspect. Like everyone is, it's just very broad and goofy. Mm-hmm. But the two leads came off very well. In Ethan Morden's book, he actually makes a really interesting um, comparison between it and Guys and Dolls. So after, you know, after the movie, uh, there was like a very successful London production. Um, but then he writes, after that, its production annals are somewhat like those of Guys and Dolls. An institutional revival at Lincoln Center in original style with the original star, Drake. Like Guys and Dolls, several appearances in the city center's spring seasons, including one with one of its originals, Vivian Blake, an all-black cast Broadway staging. Though unlike Guys and Dolls in 1976, the Black Kismet, retitled Timbuktu in 1978, was something of a revision. In a London revival in the late 70s, just before Guys and Dolls 2 made a return at the National Theatre. By now, the piece is indestructible. It is truly the last operetta. Not the last to be staged, but the last to succeed before the musical play definitively absorbed its big music. That all adds up. I mean, and that's interesting because, you know, getting into Can-Can, a lot of books and articles were calling it the French guys and dolls. So you're really seeing, uh, like we saw a chorus line reverberating through the late 70s. Everyone's trying to get their own guys and dolls. Yeah, this is like the Middle Eastern guys and dolls, or this is like (laughs) Orientalist guys and dolls. Yes, exactly. I guess one funny thing was I asked Anna what she thought Sondheim would think about this. Um, And while we didn't answer that specific question, Ron Fassler did write an article where he claims that Sondheim had seen in this musical what would be termed his favorite performance. And uh, he said Alfred Drake's performance. So while um, it might not be his favorite musical, it is his favorite musical performance. I think that adds up. What would you want to see performed? You got to have Not Since Nineveh. Yes. 
When or where could you compare high life to the life you find here? Not since Nineveh, not since Tyre, not since Babylon turned to mire. For a sin of a kind we never mind here. That's La Lume's big act one number, and you got the all the Jack Cole choreography. One little side note about the choreography is that Ethan Morden, I, he's like our number one source for this because he is the only, the only book that I have that wrote a really big section on this. I think, mm-hmm. you know, in most of the other things we have, it's just kind of a footnote. He writes that Jack Cole never, there was no number where he utilized the whole dancing ensemble at once, which I thought was kind of interesting. In the movie, I think they recreated his choreography and that's that was one of my favorite parts. Also, another funny thing, as we were talking about the New York Times hating it, one of the articles about it starts, Alfred Drake is a man with a more than adequate voice who has such a well-developed sense of style and such authority that he may manages to make the trite material which he is burdened with in the current musical kismet sound almost as witty and zestful as the authors undoubtedly wish it were. Wow, that is uh, brutal. But it's funny because everything that was written about it subsequently was like they did such an amazing job with the lyrics. So it's very funny, like how people's initial impressions change. I mean, I also think that like refashioning pre-existing classical music probably, I mean, I think that there's probably unfair bias about it because of that too. Yeah. Who knows, man? Especially music that in like the Eisenhower era, like music not written by an American being like fashioned into this American art form. I feel like mm. not a good look. Um, and also in the the book 101 Greatest Broadway Musicals, when they do their little blurb on Joan Diener, they describe her as having an eye popping silhouette and eardrum popping vocals, which is, which is what they say about me. <laughs> Just not eardrum popping in a good way. Yeah, I feel like in the Ethan Morden book, he like said that she he was like, she sounded like a Valkyrie and looked like a Valkyrie too. And I'm like, did he just call her fat? No, I think she's just stacked. She's just stacked and has an incredible, even her Wikipedia page, her uh, <laughs> her synopsis, her one-line synopsis is, uh, Joan Diener was an American theater actress and singer with a three and a half octave range. Oh my God. I think her thing was that she had an incredibly strong um, head voice and an incredibly strong chest voice and just like a seamless fusion between the two of them. So she's... She's a powerhouse. Also, fun fact, she, or not fun fact, kind of an annoying fact, is that she was replaced by probably the person who she was up against for distinguished actress Tony, um, Dolores Gray in the musical. Ooh, it's a real uh, Hello Dolly part two. Yeah, right? Well, what would you, what would you have them perform? Yeah, I feel like not since Nineveh is like the obvious choice, but I also like find the song bobbles bangles and beads to be it's been like haunting me it's very beautiful I mean, I don't, I feel like it doesn't feature the right people. So maybe that with like Stranger, that leading into Stranger in Paradise. Take my hand, I'm a stranger in paradise. All lost in a wonderland. 
stranger in paradise. And maybe the olive tree, too. Why be content with an olive when you could have the tree? That which has lulled you to sleep, fool, has awakened me. Why should I sigh that my lot is my lot, that I can't make it anything more? When this is a lie, an excuse for a fool to snore. I think that sounds good. But do yourself a favor and um, watch some Alfred Drake clips. It's also like the type of thing where I feel like I really seldom ever experience this, but like I feel like a 1960s like or a 1950s housewife of like (laughs) this man who like I am not sexually attracted to at all. Like his like beautiful singing voice is like, oh my God. Like (laughs) I know that I was watching those clips too. And it was like, as soon as he opened his mouth, I was like, oh my God. (laughs) I feel like I, my face was like the heart eye emoji. Not since Babylon read that writing, not since Jericho heard that trumpet, not since Nebuchadnezzar's hanging garden went to pot, not since that village near Gomorrah got too hot for lot. can-can yes we can-can <laughs> we can-can and we will will so can-can opened on may 7th 1953 closed on june 25th 1955 after 892 performances it featured music and lyrics by our good old friend cole porter book by abe burrows directed by abe burrows choreographed by michael kidd And the synopsis is, set in the year 1893, Can Can tells the tale of Paris dance hall owner Le Môme Pistache and her battle with a self-righteous judge, Aristide, who is determined to shut her business down. Oh, I just realized that's probably a pun, right? It sounds kind of like Arrested with a French accent. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Classic Abe Burroughs. The sexy can-can dance has been popular, and Judge Aristide is determined to stop it. La Môme Pistache seduces him, and the two eventually fall in love. By the time her case comes to trial, Aristide has had a change of heart and works to win her acquittal. And this one, Best Featured Actress for... Um, Friend of the podcast, Gwen Verdon. Best featured actress in a musical, I should say. And best choreography for Michael Kidd. We're picking up so many friends along our way. Yeah, and I think that, like, to truly like understand the difference between like jack cole michael kitt you know like i feel like i had always like lumped in all of like the great broadway choreographers together and it's like i think that one of the most important things i've learned doing the podcast is the difference between all of them so i agree well and and i think there is like a little bit of confusion because you know gwen verdon had been working with Michael Kidd, she'd been working as as his assistant, or with Jack Cole. Sorry, see, I already did it. She had been working as Jack Cole's assistant. So this uh, this show behind the scenes 
had almost like a Valley of the Dolls style uh, drama where this was a star vehicle for um, a French actress and singer named Lilo who played La Mon Pistache and Gwen Verdon was stealing the show out from under her. So like out of town, she kept being like, you have to cut her part. You know, you have to like make it smaller and smaller. And Gwen Verdon like was about to quit. She was about to quit dancing anyway. Mm-hmm. And this was sort of like her last hurrah. Um, and then on opening night, she did this, um, you know, like her one dance that was still left and the audience just like freaked out and gave her a standing ovation in the middle of the show where they had to like, she had already gone backstage to change and they like pulled her back on in her underwear. She was like just wearing it. Some some reports say a towel, some reports say a bathrobe mm-hmm. and uh, come back out to take her bow. So it didn't work, Lilo. You don't even have a Wikipedia page. Nice try. <laughs> also a very funny fact is that she did not know English and she learned the whole script and all of the songs phonetically. It's very ABBA of her. <laughs> I know. I love that. I mean, I think it's sort of like, one, it was a hit, but I think after his big flop with Out of This World a few years ago, um, this was sort of like his move back into success. Yeah, and there are some some iconic, extremely iconic Cole Porter songs in this. You got Say Magnifique. When love comes in and takes you for a spin. which um, I really love a Martha Wainwright version of. So it was produced by Cy Fuhrer and Ernest Martin, and they had wanted to do like a show that was kind of set in Montmartre in the 1890s. So they wanted to like, you know, they had worked with Frank Lesser on Guys and Dolls and Where's Charlie before, but they wanted to get the gang back together. uh, But they kind of like thought that Frank Lesser would be the wrong person for this. So they got a Burroughs back and they hired Cole Porter. Why wouldn't they hire someone? French though like that was sort of what you know I was reading some discussion of it's like I get not wanting to have Frank Lesser but it's like get someone French yeah I know and like so you know they got him to sign on they didn't get a French person which they probably should have done for whatever reason like Cole Porter like really didn't want to like be in the same room as a Burroughs and like work together cole was like i'll write my songs you write your book like it'll all work out and like eventually i guess it did work out a Burroughs said about cole's contributions to the show shows used to be quicker to write than they are now the songs didn't have to make sense they didn't have to come out of the book as much as now really until rogers and hammerstein if you had to change a scene a girl could come out in front of the curtain and sing anything or dance anything Porter created all of his songs to spring naturally out of the book. In his enthusiasm, he composed 10 songs, more than can be used. 
To give a French quality to his music, Porter composed a good deal in a minor key, which imparts a sense of sadness and longing to uh, many of his melodies. So I guess he just like really worked off of whatever a Burroughs was uh, giving him and didn't pull his old stunts of just like writing random songs. Well, it's too bad because it seems like a Burroughs wasn't really giving much. All the reviews were like the only point of view of the show is like, man, Perisher was fun in this time period. (laughs) Yeah. And also it's funny because it's like not only is a Burroughs pulling Cole Porter along like Cy Fuhrer, who happens to be a Juilliard music grad, was like very much trying to get Cole to like do what he wanted him to do. And uh, one of his rules was like to not mention Paris in any of the songs, which um, Cole Porter did not follow and wrote a song called (laughs) I Love Paris. And also, a side note that Cy Fewer mentions before they cast Lilo, he actually originally wanted Carol Channing, but she was doing Gentlemen Prefer Blondes in London, and she couldn't do it. Oh, wow. That actually would have been great. And they brought in Gwen Verdon because Lilo couldn't dance. (laughs) She was a double threat. Oh, really? So, you know, speaking of Jack Cole versus Michael Kidd, Gwen Verdon did not get along with Michael Kidd because of her loyalty to Jack Cole. And kind of like some more backstage drama, the day the show opened in Philadelphia, Gwen Verdon spotted uh, Hans Conried on a ladder measuring with a ruler the size of the letters in his name, comparing those Lilo and Peter Cookson, the other lead. Um, Verdon's own name had been cut by half. So I think that there was just like a lot of star people trying to get their way to the top. Yeah, but Gwen Verdon undoubtedly came out the best out of anyone in the show. Yeah, it's also funny because like in those kind of stories of it, Lilo was like, Cole Porter was extremely rude, but like everyone else is like, no, he actually wasn't. And like the only person he was extremely nice to was Lilo. So I don't really get. Also, side note, I found a very funny letter to the editor, another dispatch in the war of critics versus everyone else. Mm. This is from Mrs. Saul Lesser of Orange, New Jersey to the drama editor. Events in recent weeks have convinced me that your critic has lost touch with the likes and dislikes of theatergoers. I attended a Saturday matinee performance of Wonderful Town, which is a mediocre musical in every respect and which was played before an apathetic audience, and yet your reviewer lavished high praise when it opened. On a subsequent Saturday matinee, I saw Can Can, which I thought was completely wonderful, as did the rest of the audience, who cheered the performance lustily. And yet your reviewer found little to cheer about except the dancing of Gwen Verdon and the settings. Oh. Mrs. Saul Lesser was not having it. No relation to Frank Lesser, spelled without the O. Well, I think that is like an interesting point where it's like, I think for like a matinee audience, like Can Can really brings the energy, whereas Wonderful Town is like more of just a traditional book musical. I just feel like kind of like Can Can's like, it's just like screaming in your face the whole time. Screaming in your face, dancing in your face. Everybody's wearing their 
big skirts and kicking it up. Mm -hmm. So I guess kind of just the general reception of it, as you mentioned, it kind of got lukewarm reviews. From the Cole Porter biography, some view the score of Can Can as second rate. Kenneth Tynan wrote that musically it is Mr. Cole Porter at half pressure, a frail trellis for multitude of internal rhymes, although two songs, Live and Let Live and It's Alright With Me, have respectively his old buoyancy and his wan bedside wit. He also praised Michael Kidd's choreography, although he thought that the whole conception of Can Can was an American fantasy of Paris. In Sci Viewer's book, he says already, like, even before the show was up, Cole Porter was like, I know what they're going to, what the critics are going to say. They're going to say it's like not up to my usual standards, just because like the expectations for him were so high. Yeah. And it's also like this type of thing where it's like, I feel like out of this world, like, one, I think is like a much more intelligent and like, more Cole Portery score but like I think it was just like too weird and too sexy and I think that like what is funny about this show is that like I think everyone was like careful about like making it too sexy when it is like literally about like sex and the sexy war between these two yeah but I guess that's like something that should have hit me over the head that I didn't um, necessarily realize is that like this and Kismet are both very like American takes on like and I guess also Carnival and Flanders are like very American takes on like places that aren't here I mean my question is when are we gonna have like an accurate representation of the Can Can Dance who historically did not wear undergarments under their skirts. Ooh. <laughs> the answer is never. They didn't do it in Moulin Rouge. They didn't do it in this. They know that we're not ready for it. <laughs> okay. What do you think they should have performed? Um, I love Paris. Not to be boring. Yeah, I agree. I mean, maybe a dance number, but, you know, I love Paris is really the calling card of this show, I think. But also, there is a very fun song called Every Man is a Stupid Man that I had never heard before. Every man is a stupid man, stupid man, stupid man. Every man is a stupid man, except the man you love. Um, and subsequently, it has now been like every time my like Spotify goes on shuffle, it's like one of the first songs that plays. <laughs> it knows. Yes. I love Paris. Why, oh why do I love Paris? Because my love, because my love is me. Okay. So let's do let's do some quick hits. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't even know if we need to do like complete rundowns of the other ones we had. So Harry Belafonte won Best Featured Actor for John Murray Anderson's Almanac, which uh, had music and lyrics by Adler and Ross, um, who we also know from The Pajama Game and Damn Yankees. Um, but we didn't hear much more of, from them because one of them, which one is it? Was it Adler who died tragically? Yeah, young? it was. No, it was Ross. It was Ross who died at 29. Yeah. Adler lived to 90. They did. I guess it was some sort of sketch. Uh, yeah. So John Murray Anderson situation. is like apparently, um, while probably not as remembered as much, is like kind of like a Zigfield level like American theater producer. He in like throughout the 20s, like was kind of famous for um, producing body fun reviews. Much like how Kismet was like the last time we saw Operetta in the way that it 
was like they say that this was like kind of the last time that they saw that like this kind of like 20 style review on broadway Hmm. yeah so he actually died pretty recently after this john murray anderson did but he has a memoir talking about all of his you know pursuits so there is no original cast recording of this but there is like a recording was sort of like compiled of it um of like things that are featured in it so um the cd itself is not a soundtrack of the original cast of almanac but rather a a compilation of material originally from several london and broadway reviews called from two old recordings hermione gingold who we love from a little night music was kind of one of the stars of this in in the recording you would get like a very good taste of her we discover our heroine nervously pacing up and down the room, biting her fingernails. She goes to the window, throws it open, looks out and says, What's keeping Frankie so long? Why, why doesn't he come and bring me that which I must have? Cocaine chases off the blues. and i think to just kind of get like a sense of like what this would have been like the recording does like a good job they're recorded sketches they're like fun little ditties the other fun fact is that harry belafonte became the first african-american male to win a tony award kudos kudos to you Mark Twain Two fathoms off the starboard bound I've been working the river since 92 <laughs> I get a penny a day and bad liquor too <laughs> Mark Twain and then he went on to uh, get cast in the Carmen Jones movie um, next to Dorothy Dandridge. And they also starred in another movie called Island in the Sun. But funny enough, and this is kind of like a little bit before uh, Harry Belafonte became, you know, released his album that featured his famous Deo. And he kind of single-handedly like, you know, brought Calypso music to... Uh, white people Um, (laughs) um, but his actual singing voice was not included in the Carmen Jones movie with which might not be important to what we're talking about but also his uh, understudy was Larry Kurt who we would later see in company and um, also Harry Belafonte was not at the ceremony and his wife accepted the prize for him nice in terms of musicals we also had Carnival in Flanders which, uh, as we mentioned, Dolores Gray won Distinguished Musical Actress. I don't believe they made a cast album of that. No, they? she actually 
six six performance flop. Yeah. Well, I see. I've seen eight in some pla- eight performances, six performances, but a flop nonetheless. This is a collaboration between our friends Jimmy Van Heusen and Johnny Burke. And funnily enough, Preston Sturges, um, the great Hollywood screenwriter director who brought us all of our favorite uh, screwball romantic comedies like The Lady Eve and uh, The Palm Beach Story. Sullivan's Travels. Sullivan's Travels. Yeah. And, um, you know, he kind of was brought in to save things, but he, um, you know, it was kind of everything had kind of been was already too fucked up for (laughs) anyone to really help out that much. One of the songs, Here's That Rainy Day, became like a big, uh, you know, American songbook standard. Here's that rainy day They told me about And I laughed at the thought That it might turn out this way There's sort of a you know, Motley collection of of the songs over the years. And the score is very fun. You know, it's too bad there isn't a real cast album of it because some of them are very delightful. In a way, I'm glad that we met. And I have to say, he could be a nice regret. I always turn all lovers down. But he was about to turn the covers down. I'm all for men who let their affection show, but how far can a lady go? I don't mind a glance or a subtle advance, but how far can a lady go? Harold Arlen was um, originally supposed to write the score, but then it fell to Jimmy Van Heusen and Johnny Burke. So the book was originally written by George Oppenheimer and Herbert Fields, brother to Dorothy Fields, but they got booted. Preston Sturges took over, and Preston Sturges was also kind of in a slump in his uh, career. This, I think, was just insult to injury. The one thing, honestly, this season that we're currently in, if, you know, depending on how they decide to do the Tonys, is like one of the rare occasions that this record might be broken. But as of now, um, or as of, and I had seen this in more recently published things, but Dolores Gray received a Tony Award for as Best Actress in a Musical. Her win ranks as the shortest-lived Tony-winning performance ever. Wow. She must have really made an impression. Yeah, I mean, she's incredibly charming, and I think that um, she is someone who might be remembered more in the UK than here. She was, I mean, she was really good in the Kismet movie. Okay, so then we got a couple of plays. We got Ondine starring Audrey, and it's, you know, about a a guy who falls in love with a water sprite which is like of course you know could not have better casting yeah (laughs) of Audrey Hepburn and it's you know written by Jean Giraudot it was directed by Alfred Lunt and I guess like Giraudot is the author of the Mad Woman of Shalott like you know it's it's just kind of funny that I feel like he had such a strong sort of like presence in the theater at this time and now is like you know i feel like he might be like the mill more like safer 
choice of between like him and Jean Cocteau of like French poetic realists. But yeah, that ran for 157 performances. It also won Outstanding Director for Alfred Lunt, Best Scenic Design for Peter Larkin, who also did the set design for The Tea House of the August Moon, and Best Costume Design. You know, you'll see the pictures of this on our Instagram, but Audrey Hepburn, I was surprised. It's a very sexy costume design. <laughs> so the Tea House of the August Moon, which also won uh, the Pulitzer Prize that year for Best Play. It won Outstanding Play, Distinguished Dramatic Actor for David Wayne, who was doing Yellow Face. Oh, and good. as you know, this is a real racist Tony. Yeah, a, a good Tony's for Yellow Face. Uh brown face whatever kind of whatever kind of ethnicity you want to put on so this is i'll read the synopsis and it's i watched the trailer for the movie that was made of it um which is just as racist as uh it sounds in the months immediately after the end of world war ii the u.s army has occupied the island of okinawa and is trying to westernize the local population Hapless Captain Fisby wants to do good by creating a social club and schoolhouse, but the villagers would rather have a tea house complete with geishas. The situation looks like a standoff until the wily philosophical interpreter Sakima offers his services as a go-between. So yeah, David Wayne won for the role of Sakima, which um, Marlon Brando brought to the screen. Um, also in yellow face. <laughs> oh, good. I mean, it was a huge hit. It ran for over a thousand performances. It won the Pulitzer Prize and became a successful movie. And I guess the other play that also was made into a successful movie or a memorable movie was Teen Sympathy, which was written by Robert Anderson and staged by Elia Kazan. And luckily enough, we have a movie adaptation that featured the uh, original Broadway cast. But it's basically about a schoolboy who's teased for being gay and his um, headmaster's wife kind of like tries to seduce him to like prove that he's not. Deborah Kerr starred in it. Also a fun little thing, speaking of the last name Kerr, um, Walter Kerr's wife, Jean Kerr, who he would work on the musical Goldilocks with, uh, wrote some of the sketches for John Murray Anderson's Almanac. Oh, nice. Yeah. All right. I think... I think that's that, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was a weird year. I mean, I'm sure that there's some things that fell through the cracks, but I mean, honestly, it was kind of uneventful. Yeah. I mean, I feel like with all those mega hits from, you know, earlier in the decade running on Broadway, like you could have like an off season and, you know, it could kind of be forgotten. Yeah. Well, next time we're doing what you could also consider an off season (laughs) of the two of the 2000s. We're going to do 2010, which had the best musical was Memphis. You got American Idiot, Fela, Million Dollar Quartet. You got revivals of La Cage Full, Finian's Rainbow, Little Night Music, Ragtime. A lot to dig into there. I remember there was a lot of drama over this one. This is the one where everyone got mad about all of the film actors taking all the awards. I'm not going to lie. I'm not really looking forward to doing this episode, but I think we're just going to have to get through it somehow. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is part of the exercise. Like we just need to, <laughs> if we're going to do rent, we also need to do. <laughs> exactly. And I don't want to spoil it, but the one we have coming up after 2010, which is going to be the last year of uh, this go around, apart from our bonus episode, is one of the biggest Tonys of all time. This is one of the ones we... Uh, we're thinking about when we started this podcast it's going to be a big deal yeah so yeah you need to eat your vegetables we plan it out so you're taking the bad with the good so 
that's coming up next time. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at my little Tony's email us at my little Tony's podcast at gmail.com subscribe on Patreon at patreon.com slash my little Tony's rate review subscribe. I think that's all. Yep. That's about it. All right. That's it. Stay safe. Stay healthy. We love you. Stay inside. (laughs) All right. See ya. Bye.